enthusiasm, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, attention, these states were defined by him one by one as they occurred. Now, this is essentially, it seems to me, to be uh, um, the, the, the dependent arising stuff. Now, is he doing this? Is he getting this? on the way to the first jhana or is he or is this other stuff that's coming up in other words presumably hindrances and this sort of thing with coming up while he is there in the holding or, or reverting to all the time the states in the first jhana all right that can be answered um, in um, the way of, let's say, putting things together. Uh-huh. That there is actually one teaching and that it feels like that there's a whole lot of teachings to, to where. Um, so, by the way, um, this sutta is a sutta number one, 111, one by one as they occur mm-hmm. in the mind. Nikaya is a, is about uh, the Buddha introducing Sariputta to the community, uh-huh. and it may have been the, that the community was newer than Sariputta because uh, Sariputta had been, let us say, a, a mendicant or uh, a wanderer or a spiritual dude. Uh, practicing um, during the time of the Buddha when the Buddha was doing the same thing and then later uh, they met and so um, Sariputta had already developed some skills now that's uh, you kind of have to put that together from uh, history and context or whatever mm-hmm. and it, it might in fact be mentioned in the commentary someplace about this particular <laughs> sutta okay and so it starts off with um, that it took Sariputta two weeks, a mm-hmm. fortnight, to do this, which yep. meant that he was at least already skilled. Now, yep. I mean skilled in the first jhana as opposed to having experienced it once or twice. Yes. All right. Um, and... Uh, because after that statement about two weeks, it immediately then says uh, that upon eliminating all the unwholesome states. Yes. Okay, that's the way that it starts. He entered into the first jhana. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, normally it says with rapture and pity born of seclusion and having applied and sustained thought. Right. Uh-huh. So this is the first jhana, the one by one as they occur, and then we're, he's going to take an object, and the object that he is taking, the first object that he takes, and this is kind of important point, is the applied and sustained thought. That's the first object, and what that means is is that uh, Sariputta is going to make sure that he is in the first jhana because he's going to watch that the, every thought is wholesome and that um, 
we're applying the mind to the wholesome and sustaining it in the wholesome. So that's the first object that we have. And what that means then is that that's part of the skill development. All right. The next item on the list is also um, quite informative when it says then that he takes uh, pity and then sukha as objects. Really? Right. Now we can see it this way. Never mind what jhana level we're in, because uh, the jhanas are loosely associated with this. But we can, in fact, stop talking to ourselves about how good we feel and just experience how good we feel. Now, that can be done for a very short time or it can be done in a lingering time. If it lingers, then you could consider these to be the second and the third jhanas. Yes. One of the qualities that we have to understand mostly is, is that the first jhana has to be fully developed. Now, fully developed means that the student can enter into the first jhana very easily and can sustain it. So it's again that applied and sustained thought. By applying the mind, he's removed the hindrances and sustaining it. And so the applied and sustained is the big quality for the first jhana. And rapture and pity are then developed through that applied and sustained thought. The applying means to say it over and over and over again. And an example of that for let us say a new student, but basically it would be for uh, really an intermediate student who has gotten to the point of understanding their own mind well enough to apply this. And that would be something like repeating this over and over again. I give myself permission to feel good. I give myself permission to feel good. I can feel good. Oh, what a relief it is to feel good. Now, those are all wholesome thoughts, and they're in three categories. I give myself permission to feel good. I can feel good. And what a relief it is to feel good. Now, uh, these three things that I'm putting together actually come out of psychology, most specifically yeah. transactional analysis, in the three Ps that... Um, I've forgotten the woman's name who developed this, but it became a, a national hit immediately when she talked about permission, protection, and potency. Yes, okay. you mentioned that before, yes. Right, so permission then is, is that, and this is true especially in Eastern European and other countries, where everybody that the child will ever meet has the attitude, if I get anything, the government will take it away from me. Mm -hmm. I can't fix anything. Poor me. And so the whole nation of Russia, basically, as well as much of Eastern Europe, are grumpy people. They're grumpy. Yes. And the reason yes. that they're grumpy is because they do not have permission to feel good because nobody around them ever gave them permission to be happy. They were trained to be grumpy. 
Well, that's not so, just the Eastern Europeans either. <laughs> well, it depends upon how east it goes. And from the U.S., <laughs> the U.K. is Eastern Europe. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, except that um, Eastern Europe is in the United States big time also. That I would have to say from the Pacific Ocean or maybe even Asian perspective, the United States is also Eastern Europe. Yeah, well. Okay. So, um, from that perspective, telling ourselves over and over and over again that we do have permission, that it actually is okay, that we're not breaking any internal rules, Mm -hmm. and that we're living closer to reality to give ourselves permission to feel good. What is actually happening, if I can interpose here what is seems to be actually happening is that it's not really thought but rather feeling the whole thing starts the whole thing well once we sort of one stabilizes the breathing and one doesn't even need sometimes to stabilize the breathing by breathing long and so on there is an internal feeling which when the attention is turned to it gets bigger and bigger and so you get the rapture and happiness but we're not talking about feeling about thoughts in the sense of i'm giving myself permission or anything like that or nothing nothing is actually being stated as such it's not a it's not a a, a, a discrete thought put into words. Right, okay. Now, here's a point to it. Also, you've heard many times that the mind is the forerunner. Right. The mind is the forerunner in the sense that the mind actually, both in reality and the experience, as well as neurophysics, mm-hmm. the way we feel or our feelings are associated with body chemistry. Yeah. And that what kicks that body chemistry off, the controller of that body chemistry, is the mind, most specifically the sita, most specifically uh, the instinctual part of the mind that our feelings come from. It's something really funny that I have heard, and it just never made sense to me. But in the old days, like a hundred years ago, that they would uh, treat domestic animals, most specifically horses and mules, very badly because they didn't think that animals had feelings. Mm-hmm. And that the humans could do with those animals anything that they wanted to because the animals, other than the horse occasionally that broke a leg or, or got shot or something, they would kill the horse mm-hmm. to put it out of its misery. So I don't see how those two things equate. I mean, the old times long ago, I guess that it was just part of the delusion, because if you're going to put a horse out of misery, that means that the horse can feel miserable. Mm-hmm. All right. But you see, it hasn't so got human, an immortal soul. And so the misery feelings that humans have come from our instincts, from our DNA, from our connections with the animals. Uh-huh. And that, in fact, this part of the brain, pituitary and the penal gland, gland, those things 
we call the reptilian brain. Yes. Which means that even reptiles have this part of the brain, which means that reptiles have feelings. See the way that mongoose and uh, cobras interact with each other is out of fear and necessity, okay? And so there are these feelings that we have, but those feelings are controlled by, actually manufactured by the mind, by the brain. Mm -hmm. That's an important point for us to get back to. Uh, and the reason that it's important is, is because in this regard, we can talk ourselves into feeling. We well, often do. We talk ourselves into feeling bad most of the time, but we can talk ourselves into feeling good. Now, this point that I'm making about I give myself permission to feel good is actually short-circuiting that part of the brain, the uh, what you would call the mammalian brain or the mid-cortex of the brain, which is where language and concepts are stored. And that short circuits that part of it. We can say in TA terms that that's the parent. And the parent is saying, you can't be happy. Yes. Because they learned it from the parents. And so we're, we're cutting through that and say, I give myself permission now. I'm making a kind of a new rule that it's okay to be happy. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, over and over again, I give myself permission to be happy. I give myself permission to be happy over and over again allows us to actually start controlling the mind to control the feelings. Mm -hmm. We can, in fact, learn to feel good. Okay, and so the, state, the second statement is, and I can do it. Yes. That and I can do it then gives us the power, the potency. I can do it. Well, actually, the I can do it. I can do this. I can feel good. I can I can feel good or, or I can do this seems to arise much earlier than any kind of permission, because this is where the, 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 the sort of internal feeling that is built on in order to get to the, the, the ah. happiness stage, that seems to be where, you know, one, the, the feeling is right. There it is. I can if do it. If it were a monolith, I would agree. If it were a monolith, it were a one thing. But mm -hmm. in fact, it's a grayscale. Yeah. Black to white. All right. And so there certainly is some whiteness in there. In fact, students have enough of a right view from the very beginning. To read a Dhamma book, to give us a call, to start yeah. the practice. Yeah, that's where we get. And in after students get started is when they begin to feel like that they can't do it, that they get yeah. frustrated. OK, so the example of that would be somebody really is interested enough to take a Goenka course. Mm -hmm. There they are on day one, two or three in the early part of the course, hearing Goenka say when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. And what the students will do when they caught the mind wandering away is they don't start again. They fuss at themselves. Yes. They bring out that parent ego state and says, you can't do this. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. 
And so that's where these, I have permission to do it, which means that short circuits that part of the brain that says that you can't do it because I won't let you do it because you're not supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. And then the part that I can do it also short circuits that child part that says, oh, poor me, I can't do it. And so it's kind of a one-two punch. I give myself permission to do it and I can do it. Okay, now here's the next point. Oh, what a relief it is, is now directly working with the feelings. That the first two are more mental, but Mm -hmm. the second one or the third one is the the response or um, uh, the recognition of the feeling of, oh, this is a relief. Oh, what a relief it is to stop feeling bad all the time or most of the time. Yes. And this also fits in with the issue of um, uh, protection. We're protected now from being feeling bad because we actually now can feel good. What a relief it is to feel good. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's go back now to the sutta and put this into um, uh, play there because, oh, um, I have permission, I can do it, and what a relief it is, is that which will get us into first jhana. Uh What a relief it is, is in fact going into the first jhana. It's sort of like the, uh, uh, the first step into jhana is, wow, what a relief it is. And then we start applying the mind and sustaining the mind in a kind of different way in the sense of um, applying it to that feeling so that we can build it up. So another way that we can talk about it is, is that not only can I feel good, but I can feel safe. I have permission to feel secure that I am not in a dangerous place. This is one of the reasons why when we're practicing Anapanasati, we need to do it in seclusion. Because out on the highway, in the police station, in the hospitals, or even in the churches, those are not safe places. That's for sure. But sitting at home under a tree in an empty hut, would then be uh, physically a safe place. Now, we can't talk ourselves into feeling safe when the situation is actually dangerous. So we have to get out of really dangerous situations. Indeed, indeed. Indeed, to get into a really safe place so that we can feel safe and secure. But the hindrance comes in at this point because the feeling is now in this breath. Even if only in this breath, I feel safe and I feel secure. But then the hindrance comes in that in the next breath or another 20 breaths down the line, I know that I'm or at some point in the future. I know I'm not going to okay. feel safe. So this has to, this point. is why you have to yes. come back to the in this breath. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we can say things like those thoughts that we have about can I do it in the future are already hindrances. Yes, those are hindering thoughts which prevent us 
from feeling the way that we want to. So then we can make the point that, yes, we do have to get the environment safe, but that's no guarantee that we will feel safe. But one thing is for sure, and that is, is that if the environment that we're in is not safe, it's very difficult to feel safe. So we have to create the environment of safety as a way of almost giving ourselves permission to feel safe. And now we have to talk ourselves into feeling safe. Because mm-hmm. the natural condition that the human is in, instinctively so, is uh, to be on guard that things are dangerous. Indeed. And so um, the little example of that is, is that the kid, when he is seven years old, it's late at night, he's on his computer, and he hears footsteps in the hallway. Dad's coming down the hall. And the kid immediately turns off the monitor and jumps in bed. And as he puts the covers over, the, the door opens. Dad's checking on him. Okay. And so he was living kind of in uh, the reality is, is that those footsteps are now dangerous. And I need to do something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fast forward, let us say 10 years or so. And here that teenager is sitting at his computer writing code for the company that he works for or something. And now the footsteps come down the hall and he doesn't pay any attention to it. The door opens and he doesn't pay any attention to it. And dad says good night and he doesn't pay any attention to it. And then dad gets angry and slams the door and he still doesn't pay attention to it. Right? So in... In one respect, you could say that this kid was more alert, more alive, more awake when he was seven years old than it was when he was 18. Because he had gotten focused or concentrated on and wasn't paying attention to what was going around him. So part of the practice that we have to do is to recognize when danger comes. And just so mm-hmm. this is why we want to practice in seclusion is so that we can tell the difference between a dangerous situation and not a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. So from that way, by getting ourselves into a safe place, we now can start talking ourselves into, I can feel safe. I can do this. I have permission to feel safe. I have permission to feel good. Also, um, it's important to point out that it's also better, just like having the body in a safe place, is to have the body comfortable. Mm -hmm. If the body is not comfortable, then we're going to have uh, most students in the beginning going to have to deal with that discomfort as a, I don't like the discomfort. That's why it is discomfort, that it's actually unsatisfactory to be uncomfortable. It's dukkha. It's a hindrance. Mm-hmm. Sure, to sure, feeling good. sure. So if the body is uncomfortable, then the mind is going to be uncomfortable. We have to get the body also comfortable. And then we can talk with the mind, with the verbal part of the mind, into feeling comfortable. Yes, well, ideally, I find that, um, well, more than ideally, one has to have a position where you relax 
you can relax. You can relax as much as possible and not fall over or, you know, you, you, it's got to be, it's got to be so that, um, well, <coughs> it's not actually, it's not actually much good lying back. You need to be sitting up and you need to be, you need to be able to let your Actually, in the sutta where it talks about uh, going to the hut, going to the root yeah. of a tree, going to a forest, the monk sits down upright. Indeed, he does. And raises mindfulness to the forest. Sitting upright is an important quality of it. And part yeah. of the quality is, is that if we're sitting up without back support, if we are stooped uh, or leaning over, let us say, too relaxed, a lot of that relaxation is trying to deal with the fact that we're sitting in an uncomfortable position. But if we're not sitting upright, that puts a lot of pressure on a lot of muscles. Mm -hmm. Basically, we can say it like this, that with the mind, or let us say with the body, there it is, sitting upright. Yeah. But gravity is pulling it straight down. But if the mind or the, excuse me, if the body is bent over, then that's going to put a lot of pressure on the back. Yeah. And so this is why it's better to sit up straight. Now, there are monks over the years who can just lean over and relax, and they've got the body muscles to manage that. And then some uh, teenager will come by and say, that monk that I see in that photo is not a good monk because he stooped over and you're supposed to sit up straight. Well, yeah, that old monk no, probably no. has been sitting up straight for 35 years and now he's gotten so good at it that he can relax. <laughs> yeah, but but tell me why then? Because you're talking about comfort. I mean, in the in in Buddha Dasa's book, I'm pretty sure that he says you should be sitting in the lotus position. And I mean, if you're a Westerner, unless you're a kid, really, there's no way you're going to get there. It's just it's I have just, never it, seen Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa sit in the local and the lotus posture, if you're talking about that specific posture. But Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has seen me sitting in the lotus posture. Yes, but I have never seen him sitting in the lotus posture. But the story is, is that the lotus posture is the most stable posture. Yes, yes, I realize right. that. I realize. But if it's that. uncomfortable, then what's the point of it? Well, quite. But then, then I mean, we're supposed. Hang on, back to rules. We're supposed to be taking our our. Um, uh, our, our advice, shall we say, from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And here is this man saying, well, just sit like that. Um, it, it'll get it'll get better as time goes on. You'll be able to do it. OK, you, I've heard that. All right. Yeah. And and here's the problem is, is that that's generally Asians talking to Asians. Yes, I'm sure it and is. Yet the Westerners hear that and get the idea that they've got now a new rule that they're supposed to contort and bend the body into postures that it's never been in before and can't handle. Yes, yes, because right. one size fits all. <laughs> exactly. But here's the point. In fact, this is a kind of a beautiful story. Ja, 
who is my stepdaughter, whom I met when she was 11 years old, and now she's 22. And uh -huh. every time that I have seen her in a meal, she sits in the lotus posture as well as a lot of Thai people. It's common posture in Thailand. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There is also a common posture that they sit in where uh, the legs are, uh, let us say, um, the left leg is curled under the right leg and they're sitting mostly on their right, uh, excuse me, on their left hip, but they have the flexibility to be able to sit up. When I sit in that posture, I've got to lean over because I cannot get my body to, lean, to, to straighten up in that posture. And yet it is so common that almost um, all of the, um, the times in ceremonies where lay people are sitting and watching monks eat, they all sit in that posture and the monks sit in that posture and I never could sit in that posture. Uh -huh. right. But back to the lotus posture, I could learn to sit in the, the, the lotus posture until after I broke my leg, I couldn't do it, sit it in it so long. Um, but there is no reason for that. Nope. If we have back support, you see in the time of the Buddha, they didn't have furniture. Thailand doesn't have furniture. At least 50 years ago, they didn't have much furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you look at the royal palaces and all of that, you'll see the beds that they sit uh, lay on is a hard surface. Yes. No chairs in the room. Yeah. They would sit on the floor, they eat on the floor, and that comes out of the tropics. In cool. Europe, it was cold. You can't cool. sit on the floor. So they take the kids off the floor and put the kids in chairs. Uh-huh. And so the, the the kids never learned to sit in these postures. And you can tell also about the kids. There are several places. One would be gymnastics. The other would be, uh, let us say, uh, South American ballroom dancing that's like the tango. Mm -hmm. Where you have these 10 year old girls can move their bodies in ways that no adult can move. Yes, no. They're trained to do this from childhood, and those movements that they make are spectacular. That they can jump up and down with their feet like this and, and, and dance in, in a way that uh, we can't do it. Children learn to do these things. And when we're adults, we can't learn to do that. Oh, yeah. And so by sitting in the lotus posture when you're a child, it makes it easy to do it. But here we are as adults, and in fact, the two of us are old white men. Yes. And so course. we can kind of disregard those kinds of statements about it's better to do it in the lotus posture. Yeah, if you can get into the lotus posture but not being able to do the lotus posture and doing the lotus posture is pain. Mm -hmm. and remember, we're looking for comfort. I know, I know. Oh, I know that. And so if you can sit in the lotus posture comfortably for long periods of time, that would be um, uh, a very good thing, no matter what culture you're in. But 
that lotus posture needs to be trained from childhood, and in Asia, it often is. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. let's not work about what kind of posture we're in. Let's look instead for the Western mentality that if you grew up in furniture, then sit in furniture for your meditation so that you can find comfort in the body. Well, I do. I do. And I mean, in fact, if if one starts off, if I start off sitting back, I mean, as as I do the, the breathing, um, I, I sit with my uh, lower back rolled forward and my ch- chest upright because that way you get a lot more breath in. That's an important point I was about to mention also yeah. that in well, fact I do that. I mean I've got I, I pretty much got that cracked. Yeah. When we've got the when we're sitting upright, mm-hmm. we can breathe better. And if we're taking long deep breaths, that helps to make the body sit up straight so that you can take in that air. That's and so right. these things it work together. It does indeed as the as the well, as the PT comes on, it tends to make you do that anyway, you know, the, the, the sort of... Yes, it does. That in yeah. fact, that's part of it, that we can build that enthusiasm that yeah. I can do this. Yeah. I can do this. That's that middle phrase that I have permission to do it, but now I really can do it. I know I can do it. And so that enthusiasm uh, builds up that way. So... Let's get back to the point about the sutta on the one by one as they occur. But it, uh, we have to make sure again to talk about that the first jhana must be solidly developed. Yes. Okay. So that these other things can occur one by one. So in the first jhana, the first item that we take as an object of meditation is keeping the mind wholesome, applying it to the wholesome, sustaining it to the wholesome, sustaining it on the joy, the pleasure, the Mm -hmm. comfort, the safety, the satisfaction, and the success. I can do this, the Mm -hmm. success. When that builds up, we can now begin to pay attention to how good we feel before we were doing it in the other direction was letting the mind be the forerunner to the feelings until the feelings come in, the pity, the rapture, the, uh, the bliss, the good feelings of, wow, I can do this, now become the new object of meditation in the sense that we don't have to do the applied and sustained thought anymore. Mm-hmm. Now we're focusing on how good we feel, but that's how we spend the mind moment feeling good rather than talking ourselves into feeling good or talking to ourselves about how good we feel. We just experience how good we feel. Now that can, that can that can go too far, I think, because what what happens if... if well, how far <laughs> up a mountain can you go? Or how far into the woods can you go? Well, far enough that I'm sort of shaking about and doing all this, all this um, energy it flow stuff. It won't last, though. 
I know it's it like a mountain. The only the highest point that you the uh, you can't keep climbing once you get to the top of the mountain. The only place that you can go when you get to the top is back down. Yes. When you go into the woods, the only place that you can go deep into the woods is halfway in. You continue to go, and now you're coming back out of the woods. You can only go into the woods halfway. You can only come to the top of the mountain. You can't go any higher than the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is why Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa actually mentions this, is that that pity is short-lived. You can't be that exuberant for that long. Indeed it is, but then it can it can come back again. You can find yourself... Right, you can keep climbing. It's like a cycle, keep, okay? Yeah. It's, you can do it's a that. cycle, so you go up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down, but when you're up, you can't stay up that long. This is why the second jhana melts into the third jhana. That the, you could say that it goes like this. We talk ourselves into feeling We feel good. Then we feel elated. Uh -huh. And then we come back into just feeling good. Yep. The elations don't last. Those are like the mountain peaks. But you can it get it again. Gonna... You can get it second next time. You can get it three three minutes from now. But when you do get it, it doesn't last. It takes too much work. It's too energizing that we could actually relax even more than that. It actually gets kind of scary. Pardon? It actually gets kind of scary. You think, you know, I'm shaking so much, are the bolts going to come out kind of thing? You know, yeah. I'm, I'm so physically... Actually, that's, that's exactly right. You're making the point here that uh, a lot of people have the attitude and will tell you, but it's actually an experience in meditation. And that is, is that... If you feel this good, something bound to bad happen. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't feel this good. You don't have permission and you don't have the protection. You might have the power to get there, but we're going to drag you down. Yep. Of course. Okay. Exactly. So this is where we have to gain the confidence that, yes, but I have control over this now. Yes. Before the highs were uh, always ended with a crash landing. Now the highs can end in a very pleasant state only to go back into the highs at a later time. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, it does make sense. I mean, the yeah. whole thing. I mean, um, what's his face? Brasington, whose book. I used to operate from. Mm -hmm. um, he he talks about it. Uh, he certainly has talked in odd places about it in the terms of in the terms of something like you know it's something like orgasm. So that after and then then there is an aftermath to that where everything yes. goes you know everything goes down. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the into relaxation first and then into sleep or slumber that almost always people will go to sleep after they've had an orgasm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But getting that orgasm is not the point. The point is getting to the orgasm. That's the climbing up the hill. Yeah, that's the excitement. I got to get it. I got to yeah. get it. I got to yeah. get it. Hum, 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 pow. Yes. And then the relaxation comes down. Okay. Yes. So that's basically what we can say is the applied and sustained thought is, in fact, the pumping. I got to do it. I can stay it. I can do this. I can sustain this. I can keep going. I can keep mm-hmm. going. And then the pity comes and that pow happens. Mm-hmm. And after that, and it might take 10, 10, 15, 20 seconds for that pow to happen in meditation to where in sexual orgasm is only two or three seconds. Well, it's the old, old story, you know. The, the old story of how, how do you make it last that long? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Well, how you last that long is by not doing it sexually. We're doing it mentally. Yeah. And I you know. can make that pow last a whole lot longer. But it, no matter how long it lasts, even 30 seconds is still going to, uh, to fall into that relaxation. Mm-hmm. It's going to go back from the pity to the sukha. Yes. Yes. Okay, so the second jhana doesn't last very long. The question is, are you going to back out into hindrances after that? Are you going to go into full relaxation after that? Now, let's go the next little bit, because that relaxation point comes into complete rest or complete peace. This is the Mm -hmm. uh, upeka, which is just completely at rest. Now, Let's talk about a camera for a second. You know from your old days, from the film days, speed of film and also stability of the camera. That Mm. a brownie could not take good pictures because it was a handheld camera. That in fact, even out on the streets today, when people are using a cell phone, many of the professionals will actually use a pole or a stand so that they can rock solidly keep that camera at least positioned vertic- uh, horizontally. They're not picking it up and moving it like that, and it also steadies it. So this steadiness is where that upeka comes in. Mm-hmm. And you know that a camera can take better videos or better photos if the camera itself is steady. We see many fo- uh, uh, shots like that. That here's an example. These kids are sitting at the bottom of a hill or standing at the bottom of the hill, filming the hill as an avalanche comes. And you see their avalanche coming right down at them. And when they kids realize that that avalanche is heading right for them, that's when the kids run. Mm. What happens to the video that they're taking? They, the video does not continue to watch the landslide. Now the video is just scattered because it's no longer stable. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking for here in this, uh, where we call the fourth jhana, is when the sukha relaxes to the point that we've got great peace. We've got great stability. And that's when we can see how the mind functions because we've got it very stable. We're not thinking, we're not feeling, we're just watching. And yeah. this is where we can see perception itself. We can begin to see that the objects that we take in with our senses are processed. We don't live in a real world. We live in a processed world. Mm 
But hang on, hang on. What seems to happen at this point, or if if one if I keep it going long enough, is I'm going into a kind of internal state where nothing much is happening. We're not looking really at anything. It's more like a kind of it's more like a kind of blank or a, okay. or a kind of sense of being being a long way inside. All right. And then what happens in there? We can see it. Nothing happens in there. Yes, that's one of the things that does happen is nothing. Yeah. But there is also things, other things that are happening, and that is, is that you can, in fact, take in sensory input. How do you know that you can take sensory input? It's because you process it. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that processing. You can begin to see perception itself. You can see how closely or how loosely it's associated. That part of that nothingness, by the way, getting into the nothing, things feel kind of expansive. We don't even know where the boundaries of the body are anymore because to know where the boundaries yeah, of the body it's are sort of re right, requires the perception. Kind of a blob. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of a blob that's happening, but uh, but then we can go to the nothing. But here's something also that when we're in that perception state of nothingness to where we're not really perceiving anything, we're not feeling anything either. This is the end of feelings. Uh -huh. The end of perception, getting into that nothingness is the end of feelings. We're not feeling anything. We're in a nothing. And that's how this sutta ends, is Sariputta can see that the end of perception is the end of feelings, and that's the end of the story. Yeah, yeah, I mean... He has seen all the way through it, that there is nothing left to do once we can see through the stability of the mind like the camera, we can see that when we stop perceiving, we stop feelings. When we stop perceiving, we stop feeling. When we stop trying to make sense out of input, when we're not even paying any attention anymore to the input, the consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, body consciousness, proprioceptic systems, touch, all of those kinds of things we're not paying any attention to anymore because in order to pay attention to them, we have to use perception. We have to perceive these things out of the actual sensory input and make it into something. This is called the Salyatana. Now, yeah. I should make mention of the fact then that what we're actually talking about is the earlier stages of Paticca Samuppada. This is dependent origination where we've, um, uh, this is actually the second noble truth, because here's the point, if we can stop feelings, if the feelings are stopped, then there is no more liking, there is no more wanting, there is no more craving, there is no more grasping and clinging, and there is no more self to do any grasping and clinging. That's the end of it. When we bring feelings to a stop, the dukkha stops completely. It cannot proceed. 
And the way that we get the feelings to stop is by stop perceiving, to stop thinking about or dreaming stuff up or any of that kind of stuff at the low level, but at this very, very high level, instantaneously we're no longer paying attention to anything other than that nothing. Mm-hmm. But that's all we've got. And in that state, there is no feeling. Because if there were feeling there, then it wouldn't be nothing anymore, now would it? <laughs> well, of course, that's that presumably is the point where you get to the. Um, oh, I can't remember the. I, I can't remember the Pali term, the the Naroda something, the 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 sort of the the end state where there is no or is it the uh, neither perception or non-perception? Or non-perception. Okay, yep. now that's an earlier state. That's an earlier and, stage. Right. The neither perception or non perception means that you're perceiving enough to know that you can perceive. Yes. But you're not perceiving much of anything else other than that you can perceive. That you, this is, in fact, how we understand that consciousness, eye consciousness input is different than the salyatana. So you could say it like this, that on a movie set, when the actors are playing and the camera is rolling, that would be consciousness. Mm -hmm. Playing the movie that they made is the salyatana. And the editing process of the movie, once the movie has been shot and they've got all uh, all the camera angles, it goes into the cutting room, they called it. Mm-hmm. The editing room. Okay, that editing room is then perception. Yeah. So we take in input, the video is running, it goes through the cutting room floor, and then out comes the movie. Yeah. yeah. And the movie is what impacts us. The original actors on the stage did not impact us, but it had to go through the cutting room floor process the perception in order to come up with the movie. And now we're watching a movie. We're not actually watching what happened. What we're, uh, the movie that we're watching is maybe a tenth of a second after the movie was made. Yeah. Because it had to be cut and pasted and put together as a movie. Okay. And so it's the movie itself that causes our feelings. It's the movie that impacts us. So it's almost like that there's there's a movie screen in the mind and what plays upon that movie screen is the reality that we have made up, not the actual input. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's also what memory is, is just more salyatana that's just, you know, but here the, the, the processing of it is easy to do. We just take that film off the shelf, put it into the projector, And now we play to the old movie again. Mm -hmm. And it's the old movies that we play that cause us to have feelings, just like in a movie theater. When the guys are chasing each other, we get excited. When somebody dies, we get shocked. When they have a funeral and everybody's mourning or it's a touching scene, they call it touching. Why? Because we touched our own mind with that movie. Mm -hmm. That's the source Mm -hmm. of feelings is the movie that we make. So if we stop making movies, just let the actors, in in other words, if we live in a life of stage plays, 
then we're going to be okay. But in fact, we live in the life of movies. We won't let the stage. See, when the actors go home at night, the movie's over. It's gone. But we keep playing the old movies. Of course. The difficulty. And so this is the point. We keep perceiving. And this is why that sutta ends the way that it does. That the whole end of the way that the mind works is when we stop perceiving things, we stop feeling. When there's no movie happening, when the movie is not on the stage or on the on the screen, when there's no movie playing, the 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 audience doesn't know what to feel. They get bored or or whatever like that. But that's because now they're playing their internal movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. But in the reality of it is, is that when the movie stops, let us say, because in the old days, my dad was at it, that sometimes the, the, the film will break. And then the projectionist has to get the movie started up again. Mm-hmm. And here the audience is waiting for the movie to continue. Or maybe he was slow in the changeover so that when 20 minutes of this film, and now he's got immediately started up for the next projector, and mm-hmm. he went to sleep. And so this film ended, and he didn't start up the projector for the next 20 minutes of the film. Like the operator, one moment, please, while operator changes reels. The message mm -hmm. used to come up, didn't it? Yes, yes. So uh, this is why we're talking about that, that, that time of the change of the feeling, our camera, is when the movie stops, and Mm -hmm. then there is nothing. And then there is no feelings about the movie because the movie has stopped. The perception has stopped in the mind. And so this is the end of it all, is when you recognize that the way that we perceive things is where we have the feelings. And when we stop perceiving, when we stop editing and manufacturing movies, then there is nothing to feel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in most Western kind of mentality, we take these jhanas as if they were high, powerful, important, hard to get. The guys who can do the jhanas are magicians or they're uh, uh, spooky people or something like that, rather than recognizing, no, if we get the mind developed to the first jhana, then we can see this stuff from time to time. We can actually see how the mind works, but in the first jhana, it's still a bit. The camera is still a little bit shaky, and so it's the the uh, the, the images that we're collecting in the first jhana are not really clear. But if we keep seeing it over and over and over and over again over a course of an hour, two hours, several days, etc., like that, then we can see how perception creates feeling. So, in fact, this is why there is a distinction between Vipassana jhanas and the old hardcore jhanas. Because the Vipassana jhanas are done basically uh, going into the second, third, and fourth jhanas just very temporarily, just a short period of time. But the base is on the first jhana. This is called the Vipassana jhana, so that we can see what's going on in kind of the first jhana without actually having to 
fully develop the four jhanas. Yes. So because I, the, out, the outcome of this is to be able to see that perception is the devil here. Not so much the perception process itself, but the fact that much of the stuff that's on the cutting room floor of perception comes out of old snippets, old past. In fact, you can see that uh, uh, we even in uh, uh, some context call it a collage. Yeah. yeah. Where you'll mix new film with old film. Yes. Okay, yes. so that's where the Salyatana comes in. It's the old stored movies that we keep playing rather than the brand new stuff. And so the whole quality of be here now means that our perception is based upon new footage rather than old stored movies. This whole business of Vipassana jhanas that you have mentioned, actually, I find I find it quite confusing because I've I tried reading um what was it that uh, Yeats, the the mind illuminated, and of course there is there is Ingram, his stuff, um, and he's very much into this vipassana mahasi. Well, that's where he comes from, I think, um, and it seems to be to that you have to go through an awful lot of close close watching of the of everything before you can get anywhere near to any kind of jhana at all. And well, that's the common belief. Yes, the better way of looking at it is no, we need to develop the first jhana. We need to get rid of the hindrances. That's the main point. Well, effectively, that's what I've done. But I mean, then you read these books and you think, well, this isn't, you know, I should be doing it another way. All right, here's the point about books mm-hmm. is, is that they are often written, especially in the West, to give the guy his own education, to give him something to do. That, in fact, even Bhikkhu Buddhadasa did this in his first book of Anapanasati, the first third of the book was copied out of the Vasudhimaga. Is that right? Yes. Hmm. And and not only that, but the English translation of it is so bad that it's useless. But yeah, that was well, his first cut at it, and his later cuts have very, very little of the Vasudhimaga in it, and more and more of his own experience. Right. So these these books that are written, uh, the the one that uh, um, uh, the mind illuminated, and uh, what was Tuladasa's book? Uh, forgotten. That was the mind illuminated. That was Chuladasa, yes. Okay, and Ingram's book and uh, uh, Brassington's books and all of that. Much of what they're putting in those books come out of the suttas directly. It's like a cut and paste operation Uh without giving their own experience of it because putting your own experience in a book is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? It's dangerous because other people who have written books will point fingers at you. Oh, you don't do it according to exactly the way that it's put in the suttas. Therefore, my book is better than your book. Yeah. Oh, yes. So, so 
one of the things that we can do with these books is to set them down and practice. The right book to read is the book between the ears. Yeah, well, I mean, that is effectively what I'm doing more recently is I, I have rather tended to say, right, well, just leave that stuff alone and um, mm-hmm. yeah. anyway, and go for your own experience. Now, the question, though, is, is that it doesn't matter when we're sitting in meditation, what we're doing, if what we're doing doesn't affect us all day long. That this is why it's so important to develop the first jhana so that we can be happy when the postman comes, we can be happy when the policeman comes, we can be happy when the dog gets bitten by a snake, we can be happy when the server goes down, we can Mm -hmm. be happy when we need to run to the bathroom, we can Mm -hmm. be happy even if we didn't quite make it to the bathroom before things fell out of place. Okay, there's all kinds of situations. Can we maintain that jhana, that joy? That, that that's why the Buddha says is that the first jhana is the path to enlightenment, or in fact, that is the enlightenment, is to be able to maintain the first jhana no matter what happens in life. <laughs> that um, the higher jhanas are only for the informational point of that if we can stop perception, then we can stop feeling. Yeah. But When we're out in the world, we have to deal with everybody else's feelings. We have to deal with our own feelings because when we're, let us say, running for the toilet, we've got to do some perception there. We've got to find our way to the toilet. We've got to find a way of taking the clothes down, et cetera, like that. Mm -hmm. So we do not want to be in Fort Jonathan. In fact, um, I saw an old post someplace to where the student and the teacher were driving in the car. I don't know, it uh, wasn't clear who was the uh, driver, but um, one of them was saying, oh, well, now I'm going into the second jhana. Now I'm going into the third jhana. You can't talk, but better yes. still, the point is, is that uh, if you were driving a car in fourth jhana, if there's a cop around, he should in, uh, he should arrest you for driving under the influence of jhana, because you can't drive a car in second I'm, jhana. You can't attention. drive a car in third jhana, but you can drive a car very happily in first jhana. In fact, the best drivers are those who are in first jhana. Mm-hmm. It's all you could go so far as to say that even Formula One race car drivers the ones who are uh, winners, the ones who survive to retirement, when they're out there racing, they're in a state called flow that Mm -hmm. is the first jhana. They're paying attention to the road. They're paying attention to everything that happens. The same thing is true in martial arts. But it's um, because if you start thinking about the argument that you had with Aunt Susie while you're in a boxing match, you're going to get your face full sure, of this. Sure. But isn't that state more equanimity than anything else? Well, it's not so much the no, joy. No, it can have a whole lot of excitement. 
Uh-huh. If you're going, I mean, I've done it with motorcycles. If you're doing it at a high speed, over 100 miles an hour, not only do you have to pay attention, but that's a state of exhilaration. Well, yeah, that, that, that's true. That's true. Okay, yeah. so there's that jhana, that exhilaration. You then cannot you drive a Formula One car, racing <laughs> car, out on the circuit while all of the other drivers relaxed completely relaxed at peace and of course that then then the point at which you're feeling all this exhilaration is where you feel you know your back <laughs> tire breaking away or something <laughs> <laughs> and then it all goes <laughs> exactly so um you could say that in sports in driving in martial arts they develop a state that is so close to the first jhana that when they sit down and practice meditation, first jhana becomes very easy for them to do. Mm-hmm. But most of us have not developed those kind of skills. And what is the main skill? The main skill is to be here now, take input from right now, and mm-hmm. not do so much processing. So don't think about it too much. Here's an example. Back to the Formula West race car driver. Some, you know, the circuits are not like in a, uh, a stadium, but they're out on ordinary, regular streets. All they do is put some hay bales up or things like that. So here this guy is tooling along at very high speed and a woman, a granny, walks out onto the circuit, out into the road. If he says, oh, lady, you ought not be here, he's just killed her. Mm. He needs a much faster reaction time than that. He cannot think about that woman. He can just get out of the way and not hit her. Mm-hmm. Okay, but if he starts to think about her, he's killed her. If you start thinking about your opponent in a boxing ring and, and, and that kind of stuff, boxing and uh, judo and karate are not chess. They're not chess. Why? Because chess, you're trying to figure out what the next guy move is. Mm-hmm. No, in martial arts, you've got to watch the move he's making right now so that you can do something about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not pre-plan. you got to act in the moment, okay? So this is why the verse jhana is the way um, for the martial artist, but it's also the way to live our lives, is to be ready whatever's happening and be be able to handle it happily so the development of the first jhana is much much more important than spending a lot of time in the fourth jhana that the buddha in fact talks about him in the state well at least they're having a pleasant experience mm-hmm. it's a pleasant abiding but you have to be way away from other people that if you're in the fourth jhana and um, uh, somebody comes into the room, you need to come out of that fourth jhana to deal with the reality. The question is, are you going to come out of the fourth jhana back into hindrances? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to come back into the uh, out of the fourth jhana back to the first jhana? Mm-hmm. The first jhana needs to be your landing place. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, so you could actually then understand that the teaching of the Buddha about the middle path. The middle path is not a middle path between um, 
a high jhana and an ordinary state. The ordinary state is, is one extreme. The hindrances are one extreme, and the fourth jhana is the, um, uh, the other extreme. Uh-huh. Where is the middle? Yeah. The middle is the first jhana. The middle path is the first jhana, to be in the middle. Not in hindrances and not in great peace. Okay. Okay. So okay. that's it. That's well, the path to enlightenment, or that's the path to having a very happy life, is to be ready for anything without the hindrances, so that you can feel basically the way you want to feel. Now, it's unlikely for somebody to choose to feel bad, to feel angry, but it is possible. It is possible for a good meditation student or uh, teacher to fuss at his teacher, his student. Just like the Buddha said that he would take the hard approach. Sometimes we have to take the easy approach. In fact, that's the right way to train a horse is the easy approach. But sometimes you have to take the hard approach. That hard approach can still be done out of the first jhana. It just sounds like that you're angry. You can yell. Yes, yes. Well, essentially, this is this is being in control. Mm-hmm. You can yell at the kid to get out of the road and still be happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be angry at the kid when you're yelling at them to get out of the road, to get out of the way. The train is coming. Get off the tracks. Yeah, yeah. So this is the place we want to live. We can drive cars. We can watch movies. Mm-hmm. We can be in. Uh, we can be friendly with other people. We can have a marvelous life and still go to the bank and feel good the whole time. But most people, when they go to the bank, even good meditators, when they go to the bank, they got to sit in the lobby and wait for the guy. I'm talking about not telework, but you got to talk to the boss, and the boss is busy, and you got to sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait. Can you wait in the first jhana? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or do you have to wait in the sense of I want this to be over with? This is not good enough. I wish that guy would hurry up so that he can do my business instead of that first customer's business. That's hindrances. But we could oh, sit yes. there in the bank and first John and says, oh, isn't this marvelous? This is such a nice bank. <laughs> I don't know what it's like in Thailand, but I can tell you here it's gone completely. It's gone completely. It's gone completely to a state of uselessness, because what happens is right at the back of the bank, they have one teller where there used to be, you know, half a dozen of them. Mm-hmm. Right at the back, there's one, and there's a woman at the door that greets you, and you have to stand in line to get mm-hmm. past the greeting woman before you can get in to do your business, unless you do it through a machine. And then you go to the machine, and you find that uh, you have to fill in a form and put it into the machine. And essentially, you know, this all fails. I watched my wife have this happen to her. It all fails, and then you have to go get and get in line for the teller. Uh huh. You know, uh huh. After uh-huh. that, because you can't, because oh, and then they say, ah, oh, well, yeah, well, that machine doesn't work right. Well, I know. Have we fixed the <laughs> okay. No. So here's the question. Here's the question. 
can you remain happy through that entire process because of very few or no one can i know we everybody gets frustrated but us dharma dudes we can at least practice on not being frustrated while everything around us is and all the people and everybody even the tellers are frustrated because the bank is not getting enough employees or too interested in making a profit they used to have six tellers and now they have one hmm? yeah Anyway, listen, we've been at this for an hour. I know, this has been great, hasn't it? I've really enjoyed our conversation. I really like your your input. But we can go off and just feel good now. Uh Let's just go off and say, I can do this. I have permission to feel good. Wow, what a relief it is. I'm glad (laughs) you like my input because... I have to nerve myself to watch it over again because I think, you know, people are going to be looking at this and think this is a, a this guy's an idiot. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but he's a happy idiot. Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry, it's been good. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers then. Bye bye. Cheers.